Hello, and welcome to the Lifted by Love podcast. I'm Patricia Clark. And if you're just joining us for the first time, we are on week six of an eight-part series where we're looking at the Apostle Peter and all these core stories that we're told about in the Gospels. And what we're finding in these discussions is not only are these stories interesting historically, but they speak to us in a way today about what it's like for Peter to see and learn about a new kind of love that he sees in the life of Jesus Christ. And what we're finding is that they have so much meaning and insight into the human condition that it almost serves as templates that we can derive meaning from today. If you're in a book club or a small group that's reading along with the eight-week Bible study Lifted by Love, we are on lesson six. And today's guest I'm super excited about. His name is Dave Zoll. He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia with his wife, Kate Westall, who's an artist who I love and follow, and his three boys. Dave is the founder and director of Mockingbird, which puts out a blog, a magazine, a podcast, they write books, they put together conferences, and they're an organization that is devoted to connecting and finding faith and culture and the news and everyday life. And I find their work really um, perceptive and humorous. I've always really enjoyed what they write. Dave's latest book that he put out is called Low Anthropology. And that's the book that we're going to be talking about today because it fits so well with this scene where Jesus meets Peter on the beach for the first time since he since Peter betrayed him three times. And Nadia Boltz Weber, if you ever read any of her books, she's hilarious. She's irreverent as a priest. And she writes this about Dave Zoll's new book. This is the book I've been waiting for an antidote to all the self help nonsense that weighs down her bookshelves and our self regard. I feel lighter, freer and less alone with every word I read in Zoll's brilliant and truthful low anthropology. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know you will too. So let's get started. Hi, Dave. Hi, Patricia. It's really nice to to be on here with you. Yeah, how's how's Charlottesville right now? Uh, it's it it's it's turned. The weather's turned, which is really nice. I think everyone was really sick of sweating. And um, for me, I've I've got three boys, so it's all about soccer. And uh, I'm I'm staring out the window at a a a ginkgo tree that's going completely yellow and it's it's honestly it's my favorite time to be here so i can't complain well charlottesville is pretty amazing all the time but it's pretty great in the fall glad that you get to live there in that really fun place and i'd love to talk about your book there is so much in this book and so i want to jump in so we can hear a lot of it and the book is called low anthropology and i, I just have to start with this um this quote in the very beginning that hooked me, you were talking about a woman named Ada Calhoun, who was perplexed by how unhappy a lot of her middle-aged female friends were and how little they were sleeping. And I felt like, okay, here we go. We're talking about me right here, people. (laughs) And she said that she found that a great number of them were struggling with an unspoken imperative to shine in every area of life. And in the past, the question, you know, before the feminist movement was how nice is your house or how good are you at your, you know, at at housekeeping? Uh, And now it's like, how good are you at your job? And so what's happened is now it's how good are you at your parent as a parent? And is your house nice? Are you in shape? Are you recycling? And it's like every factor of your life you have to excel at. And she says that the idea that women could do anything somehow morphed into a directive that they must do everything and do it all effortlessly. (laughs) 
So that really hooked me. And, and, and because I think what in that very first section of your book, you're addressing a concept called low anthropology, which is the title of your book. And you basically are saying that adopting a view of the world that is a low anthropology really emancipates us from this burden of expectation. Mm. Could you explain for all of us, A, remind us what anthropology means and what low anthropology is? Oh, sure. I love that. I'm so glad that that quote hooked you. It certainly hooked me. Um, and she wrote, the book is called Why We Can't Sleep. I mean, it's like a, yeah. it's just a sort of an expose of like what she's, every woman she talked to was like, I can't get a good night's sleep. Um so yeah, anthropology. Uh, I'm using it not the way that like people like heard it in like when if they went to undergraduate school or liberal arts college, and you know it was the study of tribes, um, you know, in the rainforest or something like that, and right. uh, people groups and things like that. I'm I'm using anthropology. It's actually as though it's kind of an intimidating word. It's really a shorthand for what your view of human nature is. So what, when, when we, when we say the phrase, like, I'm only human, what does that mean? What is the, what's the content there? And I I mean, I don't sure everyone out there has some kind of strictly defined view of human nature, but we all have certain things that we believe to be true that human beings are capable of or incapable of. And, and that, uh, those, those beliefs, those assumptions, they're really a lot of, cause a lot of them operate under the level of conscious thought. I think they shape and inform our expectations, not only of ourselves and other people, but of our, you know, um, our jobs, and yes, our politics, but definitely our spiritual life and what we, you know, the way we read the Bible, the, what we, the way that we, what we think about church and what that's for, how we certainly are, you know, our relationships are, are kind of like uh, romantic relationships, our relationships with our children, all of these things, there's, there's the backdrop of them is a kind of sense of what, what is it? reasonable to expect of another person and what is it reasonable to expect of myself and that is always derived <clears throat> excuse me that is always derived from some uh yeah view of human nature and do we think that human beings are basically all capable of change and in what what conditions are they capable of change you know you hear people say stuff like well, people never change. Or you hear people say like, well, people can always change. Or you hear people say like, well, those sort of people never change. Um, and that's an anthropology. So uh, I'm using the word to describe uh, uh, low anthro. I, I charted on a continuum of high to low. And, you know, a high anthropology is really a very optimistic view of human nature and that, um, you know, do it all, be it all, care about it all, say it all. Um that's that tends to be a very uh, inflated view of what human beings are capable of, and a lot of times when we hear the words burnout or exhaustion, you 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 hear folks articulating a a uh, that they were they were saddled with some expectations uh, either from other people or themselves that they simply couldn't meet up to or that were driving them insane. And then a low anthropology is more like what I use Anne Lamott as the sort of as the barometer, uh, which is a more sober understanding of human nature. She says, everybody is screwed up, needy, clingy, and scared. Hmm. Uh, even the people that look like they have it more or less together. Uh, they're much more like you than you would uh, imagine. 
And so try not to compare your insides with their outsides. Now, that's a low anthropology. That's assuming about another person when I see them that, that despite appearances, despite how put together or organized or, you know, beautiful or simply just functional they may appear, that if you really got to know them, there would be some element of loss or <clears throat> heartache or doubt or besetting problem, uh, some kind of maybe even compulsion uh, that would be just as definitive. And in fact, but but there would not be a source of judgment, although perhaps it could be, I'm, I'm imagine, but if you really knew a person, you would um, judge them um, you would have compassion for them. You would under have some understanding that they were their full personhood includes their weakness, their limitation, their conflictedness, and their sin. You know, I have had the opportunity, it's been great, but for about 20 years to be working in the community with mostly women, but men too, in a faith-based context. And one of the things that I've noticed through the years is just how much every human being, even the ones that look the happiest, that look the most put together, that look the most successful, just have this inner life that is really connect that connects us because everyone has, I think I've heard it said, like everyone has the pool of tears next to them or everyone has a sense of inadequacy. Mm. And I love the way you put Anne Labhat, so don't compare your insides to their outsides. But when I was reading the book, I did have a sense that I think I have a very high anthropology and it leads itself, it lends itself to me being very self-judgmental. And whenever we're self-judgmental, we end up being judgmental of other people because you know, the, 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 the measuring stick we use on ourselves, we also use on other people. So I always think like, if you find that you're really coming down on your kids or really talking to your spouse in a critical way, I always think a great question is, you know, am I upset with myself in some way? And mm. I'm, I'm kind of projecting it onto them. But I, I, when reading your book, I thought I have a really high anthropology because when I look at someone who say whose kid is messed up, I, the first thing I look at is did something bad happen to them that made them turn out this way? Mm. Or did somebody do something wrong? Mm. And I think the reason I do that is to protect myself and think, okay, if they did something wrong, I can make sure I don't do something wrong so we don't turn out that way. Yeah, sure. That's such a good and visceral example too. I mean, how many times, like we want to assign blame and we want to figure out what's the correlation of like this, these children are a disaster and therefore how can I judge the parent in the situation for sort of causing it? Even if I know that a lot of the ways that I am dysfunctional or sinful are, are sort of, a, are they have nothing to do with my parents or they have a little bit to do with my parents, but they have a lot to do with all these other things that are going on. Well, um, let me pause you real fast. And I had a pediatrician one time say to me uh, that I, I was saying, oh, I think my kid's sick because I fed them too much sugar or like they stayed up too late and I forgot to put them to bed on time. And she said, I'm sure whatever is wrong with them is ultimately your fault. And I was like... <laughs> 
She just pulled the best jujitsu move on me. She just named exactly what we think, you know, to that point of it, 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 that high anthropology really, if you follow that path, Mm. you, you can't help but lose. You can't help but end up judging yourself and others. So I interrupted you, but I had had to share that. No, that's so good. I think we, what you're, what we're talking about is like a causality that allows us to remain in control. Like that, that is, but is ultimately a fiction. So there's a causality that those parents did that to make their daughter this way. And so if I just don't do that, then my kids will turn out perfectly. So then I'm in control. High anthropology assigns to people more agency and control than they actually have. And that's why we like it. I mean, I have a, uh, the reason I wrote this book is because I need to hear it. So like I have this operating high anthropology as well. And uh, from which I think God graciously sort of, uh, and sometimes painfully uh, unburdens me, shall we say. Mm -hmm. But so if you have a high anthropology, you assume that people, the main problem with other people is they just need to have better information. And if they're just told what to do, they can do it. And even though that's never really worked with our spouse, even though it's never really worked with our children, we think somehow if we just communicate the right things, that people will change and be able to act in a certain way. We don't, um, and and therefore, uh, you either sort of break down these categories of uh, you know us versus them, like they they just need to be need to know what I know, and then they'll change. Uh, Or I just need to sort of pull myself up by my bootstraps and work hard enough to enact change from the sort of outside in. And, um, and, and a high anthropology basically sets us up for uh, resentment, resentment of other people. And I think of ourselves because it, it it assumes uh, one of the lines, I think Patricia, that has really spoken to me and spoken to people from the beginning of the book, because sometimes people hear, low anthropology and they think, oh, you're arguing for sort of a uh, shaming uh, understanding of human nature, of uh, embracing our limitations to the extent that we're sort of bad self-esteem. And I really think the line is that it's not shame-inducing or defeating to say that you cannot do it all, you cannot know it all, and you cannot care about it all. What's shame-inducing and defeating is the idea that you can, you just haven't pulled it off yet. Hmm. And wow, I th- that's I th- so good. I think a lot of us operate under this, well, that's a high anthropology, is, is do it all, be it all, care about it all. And, um, and if you show any chinks in the armor, I mean, there's a lot of, today, there's a lot of buzzwords about vulnerability and um, uh, the opposite of perfectionism. And I think those things are generally really good. They're a response to a overwhelming demand that we feel to never um, uh, reveal any kind of uh, weakness or chinks in the armor. Or we want to reveal just just enough of ourselves so that we're relatable, but not enough that someone would judge us. Right. That's right. Vulnerability has become a new um, standard 
for excellence now. It's like, are you vulnerable enough, but not so much that you're airing your dirty laundry, right? Yeah. Like, show me that your kitchen is a little dirty sometimes, but don't tell me that you snap at your kids or your spouse when, like, in, in a truly arbitrary and cruel way. You know, that that's, I don't want to hear that. Like, yeah. I, yeah. No kidding. It, in the book, you call, you talk about doubleness. Mm. And doubleness is one of the pillars of a low anthropology. And that is that you have this way that you ought to behave, but then you have this desire or these emotions. And, and, but so we think of ourselves in a certain light, but then our desires, our emotions betray that identity. And I was remembering the other day, this just came to mind a couple of years ago, I was super angry. And as I'm, as I'm telling you this, this is, I think of myself as someone who doesn't have an anger problem. Like there are a lot of people out there that have real anger issues and I am not one of them. (laughs) This is where the doubleness comes out. I remember this moment where I threw a spatula at my husband and it hit the refrigerator and there's a dent on my refrigerator. And, And I like, I have never here, here's the doubleness. I'm not the kind of person that does that. Like I don't throw anything at anybody. I'm just not an anger person like that. But then apparently I am like, uh, apparently <laughs> I am. Apparently I threw a spatula at my husband at some, at one point. I, I don't even think, I think he was sort of teasing me about that. It wasn't even mm. like a real fight. He was teasing me and I just, it, I, it flipped me out. So um, there's this idea of doubleness where when you have a high anthropology, you're not willing to see the parts of yourself that don't measure up with who you think you are. Yeah. Um, and I think it can spin the other way where you can think of yourself so lowly that you, um, that you don't even want to acknowledge some of the ways that you aren't terrible. Yeah. You know, it can spin both ways. Absolutely. You can think of yourself too high or low, low anthropology doesn't mean that you think of yourselves in this like shameful way. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I, it's, it's an honest way. It's a comprehensive right. way. I'm capable of enormous good and charity and love and excitement and joy, but I'm also capable of, you know, acts of malice and blindness and weakness and also just short sightedness. And if you, if you have, um, you know, social media is the great example. If you have a, a view of people or, or if you're trying to con- only project the best parts of yourself, and yes, those might be quote-unquote vulnerable parts, but if you're only trying to project a certain narrative about yourself to the world, you're going to leave out some important information that will ultimately um, may garner you some um, admiration or some respect even, but it won't garner you any love because you won't feel loved when some false mask is uh, that you wear is loved people only ever feel love when they're um seen for who they really are and you're only ever seen for who you really are when you're seen you know in your sweatpants uh, you know with no makeup on and uh having you know uh just blown it for some in, in some parenting way and I, I told myself I wasn't going to allow this child to push my buttons again and yet here I am uh, going doing the exact same thing that happened to me last night and um, a doubleness is is really my just is a word for sort of conflictedness it's the the Romans 7 um, uh, understanding of the human condition like I know the good I should do but the evil I don't want to do that I keep on doing mm-hmm. it's also another way to say that it's not always evil by the way it's simply that um, there's a difference between what we should do and what we want to do. 
and mm-hmm. uh, we are always the subject to enormous amounts of uh, desire. To, and desire, yeah, I, I happen to believe, and I think that the Bible very much backs this up, or and I or I derive it from the Bible. But I, I and I, I think social science backs it up. Is that human mm-hmm. beings are primarily emotional creatures, mm-hmm. and if you want to find out you know, how to, if you want to get to know someone, you need to figure out what they love and what they hate and what they're afraid of. You don't really need to know what they think about such and such a thing. Those things are maybe interesting, but you don't know a person until, and you won't understand the way that they behave and you won't understand the way you behave until you understand the, the core fears or desires that are running the show. It's that, that movie inside out is so, uh, has struck such a chord, and I think they're making a sequel about puberty. Ooh. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow! Yeah. That anyway, I don't know if that's 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 doubleness, and doubleness is kind of not. Um, it's a little controversial. It, it, it makes sense of things like addiction and and temper tantrums, uh, but it also is not a very flattering view because we want to believe if I just have the right information, I can pull it off. Uh, if I just tell my spouse that I can't stand it when they chew gum, uh, they since they love me, they will stop doing it. When, as we know, uh, there's all sorts of other. Or, or let me put it this way: we, I, I always think mm-hmm. about it when you go and visit like your in-laws, you know, and you say, "Hey, uh, maybe uh, it would be great if you didn't revert to a 12-year-old, you know, around your parents or around your siblings, and you guys didn't play out all these roles." Because I'm left feeling so alone and. <clears throat> um, I mean, this is what my, my wife has said to right. me because I got two brothers and we, we, we just become teenagers again. Right. She said, please, please, you know, it'd be really wonderful if uh, you could just be an adult and be my partner and, and not like regress and just make bad jokes and all that stuff. And I say, yes, that's totally right. That's totally true. And then put in that context, in that situation around that dinner table, I just find myself, I watch myself do these things. And in a sense... You know, your family of origin, those are some very, very powerful forces. And anyone who's like tries to get in the way of them is is going to be very frustrated and start to really um unless they realize that you are kind of a, an yeah. underdog in the in the struggle against your background. <laughs> and, right? I mean, I that's me. Well, and to tie it back a little bit to the Peter story. The lesson for this week is where Peter sees Jesus again on the beach and Jesus says to him, feed my sheep three times. And it's a little bit hurtful to Peter because Peter, or or you get the sense it's a little bit hurtful to Peter that Jesus would have to tell him to do something three times. But the the writer of the gospel is clearly linking it to the three times when Peter betrayed Jesus. And it's almost as if Jesus knows that in order for Peter to change, he needs to have a low anthropology. And as I was reading your book, the two things that really stuck out to me in terms of flourishing as human beings is an understanding, a firm grasp, almost an experiential moment of shock. And it's almost like the um, veil is pulled back and you see the reality of yourself. Like that's an essential step to flourishing as a human being coupled with 
and you hit on this earlier, love, coupled with love. Um, and love at some level is about desire, but unlike doubleness where we desire to eat the cookie, but we know we ought not to, love is, is like this even more powerful form of desire. Yeah. And you see this a lot in addiction literature. Um, you see it a lot in movies that people can be given all the information in the world about how their behavior is causing harm and how their behavior might kill them. And, and they know all of it. And it only leads to shame. And shame is like a foot on your chest when you're on the ground. But the, the literature is so clear that the thing that leads to change is desiring or loving something more mm. like you love something greater. And this moment on the beach, it's, it's almost like Jesus is saying, I see you, Peter, I see you at this low moment and I love you. And Peter leaps out of the boat to come to Jesus. And something about that coupling of love for Jesus with a low anthropology which is another word for like complete unself-delusional awareness of his, you know, his baseness or, or his low capabilities. Mm. I, I just feel like that combination is this essential training ground for his leadership. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely, um, you know, perfectly played out or just illustrated for us in this, in this Peter on the beach, because Jesus, yes, I, it's, it's what they call a throwback, right? He is, he is by asking him three times, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Like it is, um, it's, it, he's acknowledging the depth of Peter's failure. And yet in the midst of that failure, he's not turning away. In fact, he's giving him more responsibility after Peter has, he's giving him the opposite of what he deserves, which you would call grace. You know, he's, he's giving him honor, prestige. He's, he's, you know, upon this rock, I'll build my church. It doesn't seem like a rock to me, Jesus, but this is how, this is how the God of the universe operates. And it, 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 I mean, I'm here a person who's like, wow, if, if God, if Jesus could use Peter, then maybe he could use me because Peter... Mm explicitly denied Jesus three times after being told he was going to do so. I mean, if that's it's not like that information, yeah. the information didn't change. If that's not doubleness, I don't know what is. Right. And yet that doesn't disqualify him from the life of grace and following Christ. And in fact, if anything, you know, Peter's just this great example of faith. He's always, if you read his, his, his resume, he, he gets it wrong in almost every conceivable way, except for he does say, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And he says, and you know, he, to whom else shall we go? Like he is, he does, he does confess who God is. And I think sometimes he's able to see the reality of Jesus because of his own inescapable shortcoming. Hmm. And, you know, that is the truth, I think, of like the Christian life in a lot of ways. We are sort of made aware of our smallness and it's not a smallness that somehow, um, leads to despair or nihilism it's 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 the smallness from which we can see the largeness of god like i always say the lower your anthropology is the higher your christology will be which means your understanding of jesus if you have a, a you're gonna have a, a a big god you know who can save you and do for you what you cannot do for yourself that's that's the christian faith to me and that's what is is 
in Peter. Peter is a is a man of faith because he doesn't have faith in himself. Uh, he's been unburdened of that. He has faith in God. Love is this. It, it's just the way we were created by God is that love doesn't connect. It doesn't flow outside of um, weakness. And mm. it just is like... Wow, that's really good. You can, can you say that again? Love does not flow outside of the the the, the avenues of weakness. Mm. You, No one feels loved when their the picture of themselves on their best day gets a like or a heart. You feel loved by the person who shows up for you on your worst day and um, somehow is uh, sees beyond it or sees y- you fully. And uh, a time and time again, if you get into the way that Jesus operates in the world, I think it's um, he he he's he's so much more comp uh, gracious with those uh, who have un- been unburdened of any delusion about themselves. Hmm. The people who think they're really good, he has he goes to pains to kind of cut them down to size. He he they, because almost always their goodness has become a, a, a justification for cruelty. Uh, but the people for whom life is broken and sort of uh, broken on the wheels of living is how Thornton Wilder puts it. He just goes to them with with um, with mercy and with mm-hmm. healing, and I think that that's how how God works in the world. But I also think it's how love works in the world. So, mm-hmm. and I also think it, again, it's another reason why the ultimate revelation of God is is Christ crucified. I mean, there's there you have this paradox of like ugliness and beauty and God working through a death rather than through a victory or the victory is in the is in the resurrection which is to come but there's no these things are inextricably linked and they're inextricably linked in our own lives I think that the the, the I was thinking about this Patricia because I've been doing a lot of weddings uh, after COVID has um I work with college students at the University of Virginia and a lot of them want to get married and COVID shut weddings down and now so there's been a backlog so we've done a ton of weddings and so i've heard all of these um wedding toasts and uh you know rehearsal dinner toasts and you're just struck by time and again it's never a resume that people want to toast to their friend they always talk about you think you know her in her beautiful wedding dress and on her breast day and she's incredible and i love her she's amazing but let me tell you about what she was like our junior year of college when we were on that one road trip, you know, or for the guys, it's always some sort of like, he is, yes, he's, he's killing it at work, but we all know that, you know, if, if he's the last person you want to call, if you need help with your car or something like that. And, and, and what is communicating love is not accolade. It's some sort of knowledge of, 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 of their reality. Mm-hmm. And by reality, it's their low anthropology. So it's it's again, it's not a view of human nature that says that we're we 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 were somehow categorically bad. It's saying that to be real, though, and to be loved, is to be seen in our full, the comprehensive view of ourselves, not our shiny exterior. You know, I'm a real visual person, and hang with me here with this little trail of thought. I was watching a show about, I think it's called Life Below Zero, and it's about people who live in Alaska 
off the grid. And there was this craftsman who was taking a piece of wood and he was carving out the center of it. So imagine like a round cylinder and he was carving out the center of it to be used as a tool. And if we take that image, it's almost as if our failings, our awareness of reality of who we are, our awareness of the three pillars you talk about of low anthropology's limitedness, doubleness, and self-centeredness. And when we have life experiences where we are being, where we recognize our limitedness, our self-centeredness, our doubleness, and we don't resist that, it's almost like it carves the inside of us out into being vessels. And only then can we be vessels of loving kindness. And when we're filled with this high anthropology of I'm good enough, I'm judging other people, I need to work harder, I need to pull up myself by my bootstraps. It's like we don't have the space to be loved mm. and we don't have the space to give love. And I, I, I just want to share this little story because it just happened. When we become vessels of love, I think that's when, ironically, it, it's like we become high, mm. but it's not us that's high. It's the love in us that is flowing out that is high. Mm. Um, so, and there's a difference. It's like, we're not becoming great, but we are vessels of love, which is great. And, you know, the one thing hesitation I had when I started reading your book before I got into it is, how can you say that humans aren't of a high anthropology? I mean, look at the sublime, beautiful things that artists make. I mean, you listen to music, you you see the acts of goodness of like a Mother Teresa or, I mean, it's just, mm. sometimes it's breathtaking, the beauty that humans have endeavored to do. But really, we are vessels of that beauty and vessels of that love. And, you know, when I shared the story in my group about me, let's say I shared the story about me throwing the spatula since I already shared that here. I, I told a different story, but it, it's similar vein. And I told you that women had tears in their eyes because they felt like they weren't alone in their low anthropology. They weren't alone. It was like the shame was lifted off the room mm. of all these women. And the next week I got this bag on my porch left in the middle of the night. It had all these tags that the paper was cut exquisitely. There were these verses handwritten in this calligraphy and inside the bag were 50 tiny one inch jars and inside of them were mustard seeds because we talked about the parable of the mustard seed. And this woman, I don't even know who it was because it was anonymous, had spent hours putting together this beautiful craft bag. It had um, fresh flowers glued on it. It had you know, the script calligraphy and then these tiny jars. And she wanted me to give them to everyone in the group. And I felt so much love and beauty through that gift. It moved me so deeply. Mm. And I share that story because it, it was such a selfless act. I mean, it was an act of high anthropology, mm. but it came from awareness of a low anthropology it was linked to that time when I shared about me being mildly abusive and she felt the shame left. And it, it like the carving of that guy and the tool, it like carved that low anthropology, carved out the space for love. Yes. And then she was capable of an amazing act of love. 
as small as it might seem in the global scheme of things, it was beautiful. That's what a great story that is, because that's that's precisely it. I mean, I think that um, when when people truly feel loved and 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 they never feel loved if they're not seen, and yeah. they never feel seen if they're if there's not some acknowledgement of the sort of less savory parts of our lives. When they feel loved, like all sorts of amazing fruit is born and and like mm-hmm. creative stuff. I mean, that is so much cooler than if you told them. Okay, so in light of this, now everyone do some sort of act of kindness. Like that was some spontaneous thing that you and I are talking about. And by the way, the fact that it's anonymous is like even it's not mm-hmm. self-seeking necessarily, or at least it doesn't seem to me. Mm-hmm. I think a low anthropology, again, it doesn't in any way preclude acts of wonder and beauty. If any, it, it, what it does is it, I think it increases our sense of awe and wonder at the amazing amount of goodness that is on offer in the world. I mean, given what I am really like sometimes and what other people have been like to me and the way that I've had to bear the, you know, the fallout of other people's low anthropology and given what, given what, I, what really goes on in my mind sometimes isn't it amazing that there's so isn't it evidence of God's grace that there's so much beauty uh, on offer? I mean, I think that that's the approach that we would we would take rather than high anthropology, which says uh, if other people were just more like me or if or if I were just more like other people and spends basically turns you inward and you never start to actually think about other people, what they might need or what might help them. They mm-hmm. only are there to judge you. And or as a basis to for you to judge yourself, and a high anthropology um, kind of shuts down that, or it 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 becomes a um, uh, why aren't people better? Why aren't they doing more? Why aren't they giving more? Showing up more? Why aren't they more loving? It, 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 that's a resentment. And a low anthropology looks at the same people. Like, wow, given the knots we're all tied in, given the baggage we're all dealing with, look at how much beauty. Sp- spews forth from just regular human beings who are uh, when when they don't feel alone or ashamed they uh, start to act in creative spontaneous other centered ways that just kind of blow your socks off and by the way I was thinking I would think about what you said earlier I mean um, about your story it applies to art too you know I uh, I'm a big Seinfeld fan I just love Seinfeld, and Seinfeld is a very a show with a very low anthropology, meaning it sees people as deeply self-oriented and 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 kind of it's nihilistic in the sense it it seems like they're like incapable of true love. And I, I get off the bus there, uh, but I do see the, like the little things are the big things. People are all kind of emotional and limited, and all these things. But the care that was taken with the show itself and the degree of humor and uh, fine-tuned detail and artistry with which it was made it is just shows you that while depicting a quote-unquote low anthropology to do, to do it so beautifully and immaculately is that's the human condition you know that mm-hmm. that's uh, and and it so that it reverberates across the spectrum and makes people laugh and brings them joy i mean that is that's sort of everything to me to mm-hmm. uh, but if but if i'm rarely moved by a piece of art that doesn't show that doesn't acknowledge the frailty somehow mm-hmm. I mean, there's beauty in the just beauty, but if you if you really want to see an amazing painting of Christ on the beach with Peter, the 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 super flowery you know 
perfect scenery ones will not move you in the way that something and I'm not I'm not I don't know if he did one of these but a Rembrandt that's sort of grainy and gritty and there's the light is kind of iffy and um you know j- just think about uh, one of his uh, nativity scenes uh it, there's light shining but it's only shining that brightly because of the darkness I think that we these things are all wrapped up and it's part of the richness of the human experience especially in in God's world that um the the that that love and um, grief are uh, inextricably linked. Yeah, it reminds me of that hymn, the line from the hymn that said, uh, sorrow and love flow mingled down Mm. when they are describing Jesus on the cross. And, you know, your wife is a painter. I got to give a shout out to her, uh, Kate Westall, if you guys want to check her out. I have one of her paintings, but I know enough about art to know that a really integral part of art is making sure that there's enough dark in the painting mm. um, or else it just feels flat. And it, fe- and it and you know why? They say it doesn't look real. So, you know, I, I want us to wrap up, but there's a lot in this book that we didn't cover. And I hope that our listeners will check it out. But I just want to close with this question for you, because we've talked about how information doesn't change us, self-judgment, self-criticism doesn't change us, but it's love. And this picture of Peter, his love for Jesus is he becomes this vessel of loving kindness to the world and of truth to the world. And we'll talk about Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our later lessons. But one of the things I think that has been a problem in our society right now is that we have a lack of delight. You know, we have an abundance of pleasure that's available and entertainment. Mm. You know, we're entertaining ourselves to death. But there, there just seems like a lack of things to de- that we participate in that delight us. Mm. And that woman, when she made that bag, I felt her delight in making it and her artistry. And it delighted me. And there's a lift there. Uh, we talk about being lifted by love. And there's a lift when in, in our, the things we find delight in are usually a little bit quirky, you know, <laughs> maybe even nerdy. Yeah. So, I mean, you said you delighted in Seinfeld and that made you laugh. Is there anything else these days as you know, as you're going about your fall that you look forward to that brings delight? Uh, delight is. And, and I'm going to say you can't say your kids. Can we, can we take that one off the <laughs> take table? Take one off the table. Yes. They bring me equal parts delight and consternation. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> Delight is the great word, I think, and that's such a word that's worth reclaiming. Uh, it's it's a key category. I, I use Saint Augustine a lot in the book because he's so interested in desire and delight as it relates to God yeah. and our motives. So as I'm traveling around talking about the book, uh, music is a source of in- enormous delight for me, That's and great. I just love music. And so as I go around, I-, I try to visit sites of musical significance. So when I was traveling from Memphis to uh, Birmingham, I stopped in Tupelo, uh, Mississippi, where uh, where Elvis Presley was born, and I found that delightful. Partly because it's so I mean, talk about light and darkness to see the humble. Nazareth-like conditions in which Bethlehem-like conditions this man was born in and raised in in the little Assemblies of God church where he first learned to sing. I thought to myself, this is how I just I just was blown away by the uh, beauty that was wrenched through such um, humility and uh, limitation. And I thought to myself, this is how God works. And this is actually a miracle when I think of a little boy who lost his twin 
and and you know honestly in a lot of ways had was was outmatched outflanked by the the temptations of the world and certainly had his own darkness to contend with but you just you look at the this didn't have to exist this um didn't any any betting person would say it shouldn't exist and yet here i am in tupelo mississippi at this tiny little shack where elvis presley was born and thinking to myself um he's influenced every thing i love in in life and um that's delightful thanks for sharing that uh, i hope that listeners will check out your mockingbird blog and your magazine and to check out your website because that's a lot of what dave does i i delighted when i was reading your book you have i i wrote ha in the margins so many times <laughs> because it made me laugh and you just you are you kind of look at society and culture and TV shows and music and news, and you extract meaning and humor out of it in a way that is is pretty delightful. So oh. I hope people, I really laughed a lot when I was reading this. Thanks so much, Dave. And um, maybe, maybe we'll chat again soon. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thanks for having me. 